Amen to that. Your words will last forever. My name's Scott, and I'm excited to look together. Mark chapter 8. And I would encourage you to grab the Bible near you. Uh, if you have one in the pew, it's page 713. I'm going to just, it's a fairly short section, but take it verse by verse. We're about halfway through this uh, book of Mark and builds on itself. You know, sometimes you pick up just one little spot and, oh, wow, that's really awesome. But then you see the context of how it fits in. And halfway through, uh, this is a powerful piece. So I'm going to read the first section of it, starting at verse 1. During those days, another large crowd gathered. And since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them home hungry, they'll collapse on the way because some have come a long distance. Where is those days and that place and all? And sometimes when you read these things like that, that seems kind of like I just heard that story, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And true enough, he... Part of what Jesus does in the book of Mark is he does these powerful things, and then he does them again. And it makes sense when you see where he's doing them. And this is actually on the eastern side now, again, of the Sea of Galilee. It's not the first time Jesus was there, but back in uh, chapter 5, his first trip over where he exercised demons from that man who had the legion of demons and had a fame over there. Similar to what happened in, in chapter 1 on the Jewish side, but the crowd was saying, leave. They begged him to go. They were afraid of him. And if you remember in that section when Jesus was about to depart, the man who was freed from the demons wanted to go with him, and he said, no, no, you stay and go through the ten cities here and just tell them, show them who you are and what I've done. And apparently he did just that because now, as we pick up in these chapters 6 and 7 and 8, where Jesus is doing similar things to what he did on the, on the other side of the, the sea, huge crowds are gathering this time. And they're hungry for it. And in fact, here it says that it had been three days that they were listening to him. Now, maybe that was because the Pharisees weren't there interrupting every other sentence, you know, and trying to stir a riot. You could get a little bit more done. But three days into it, Jesus has compassion on them. And he says it to the disciples. And so, verse 4, they answer, well, where in this remote place can we get enough bread to feed them? It's like, they forgot? You know, you just... This isn't the first time you've seen all these people here, and, and it doesn't even seem to enter their mind. Like Jesus can turn, you know, bread, a few loaves into many. And maybe it was because, well, they'd seen it, but they saw it happen on the Jewish side, and, you know, Jewish people, well, okay, they are special, and they're God's chosen, and certainly he's going to feed them. But Gentiles, dogs as they called us, they couldn't see it happening there. Or maybe it's because Jesus doesn't just willy-nilly throw miracles around every time somebody's got a sore toe that he just, you know, that's not how he operates. So maybe they, they weren't just coming to expect it. I, I can understand for sure. But that's where they're at. You know, um, 
how are we going to solve this problem? And then Jesus asked them in verse 5, how many loaves do you have? Seven, they replied. And he told the crowd to sit down on the ground, and when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. And they had a few small fish as well, and he gave them thanks for them as well and told the disciples to distribute them. And the people ate and were satisfied. And afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present. Well, in this patriarchal culture, you know, they didn't, that was how they took census was they counted the men. But we know that they weren't just men there eating. There were women. There were children. You know, you have to estimate at least 20,000 people. Imagine Westboro. It's about 20,000 people. The whole city. Or Grafton or Holden. In 1740, George Whitfield was said to have preached to 23,000 people in the Boston Common in the open air. And he wasn't the first to do it, right? Jesus is here three days with that size crowd teaching and healing, casting out demons. And food was not their number one, you know, three days. I mean, that's you can get pretty hungry after three hours sitting and listening to preaching. <laughs> it says he had compassion on them. How does he begin it? Verse 5, how many loaves do you have? This is some powerful lessons. God has created out of nothing. That's how he created all that exists in creation out of nothing. But most often since then, he multiplies what we bring. He asks us, well, what do you have? And it's a lesson that is throughout everything, sowing and reaping. You don't expect to harvest if you don't plant. And the thing that you plant is the thing that you're hoping to harvest. Sometimes it's just that reality that the very thing I need the most is what by faith I give. When everything in reason would tell me, hold on, keep it, use it, don't let anybody else have it. It's interesting, even when Jesus asked for how many loaves are there, the first telling of the story in the Jewish side, when John 6 counts it, they said, well, we found a little boy and took his lunch. <laughs> Probably disciples had food too, but they weren't going to necessarily part with it or others, but the little boy put his five loaves and two fish, and, and Jesus multiplied it. Now they, were, they knew a little quicker. Wait, I have seven. And God calls us to walk by faith, and part of that is we're in touch with what we need, and we give that. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he will add all the other things that he knows that you need. It's in that very context of worry and fret and what are we going to eat and where. And he says, put me first. Be faithful in the little. And I'll entrust you with the greater. And he's teaching them even as he's doing it. 
And then in verse 8, he sends them away after the three days. And now gets in the boat with his disciples and heads to the region of Dalmanotha, which is back on the Jewish side again. And they sail over there, and guess who's waiting? The Pharisees. Here they are. They've been watching this. You know, what's he doing over there with their, those people again? And you can imagine. They're coming up with their best trap and best way to get them. And he gets off the boat, and they say, the Pharisees came and began to question him. I like how the message says it. They came out and started in on him, badgering him to prove himself, pushing him up against the wall. It says they tested him, asked him for a sign from heaven. And he sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. And then he left them, got back in the boat, and crossed to the other side. It's probably the quickest mission trip in history. Maybe the shortest church service. I'm out of here. And you wonder, well, why doesn't he just give them a sign? You know, he, like they're asking, do something. But it's not how God works. It's the very same word, actually, to test him as shows up in the 40 days in the wilderness when the devil tempted Jesus for three days. Oh, turn these stones into bread and jump off of this high place and let the, you know, he wasn't going to fall into that. They did the same thing when, in, when they were crucifying him. If you're really God, then come down from there and show everybody. And he doesn't buy into that. He moves in our lives and he does powerful things, but it's either in response to faith or to engender faith, but not to prove to somebody who's already trying to disprove faith. It's a good lesson, you know, people who are trying to disprove everything with us. How many are won over by arguments, really? It doesn't happen very much. But live authentically as Jesus did. And, and some of the Pharisees, Nicodemus and others, are watching him, you know? And they come into him secretly, and, and their hearts are being won over. I like in AA they use the term attraction versus promotion. People will get to the end of themselves soon enough. And when they do, maybe you will be one who they're thinking may have some solution or an answer when I'm actually asking the question. Well, they get in the boat, and they're not traveling all the way back to the Gentile side. Again, they're going down to Bethsaida, where Jesus really is his home area. And so as they're sailing there, it says that, verse 14, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread. Oh, boy. Bread again. It's a real problem, isn't it? Except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. And Jesus warns them, be careful watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they started to discuss what he's saying. It's because we have no bread, they said. <laughs> wow. Adventures in missing the point. Yeah, except if I can, couldn't see myself so much in the story, you just got to be like, are you serious? 
And Jesus starts then, aware of their discussion, he asks. In this last section of five verses, he actually asks ten questions. Last time I was um, speaking here, referenced that in the Gospels, Jesus asked 307 different questions. So it was a powerful way that he taught. He used questions to place us in a position where we can see that, wow, okay, I guess this applies to me. So listen to the 10 questions he asked. Why are you still talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but still fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And they answered, seven. Do you still not understand? Do you still not understand? I think verse 18 I've thought about these three questions now for a few weeks. And I've, I've taken the discipline every morning before I start to pray and start even my devotions. What do I see? What do I hear? And what do I remember? I'd invite you just to Think about that. We've been singing these songs this morning. We will keep our eyes on you. We just sang, let me hear your words above all other voices, above all the distractions of this world. For what I see, what I'm looking for, determines what I see. What I'm looking for determines what I see. We see it in Moses sending 12 spies into that promised land after they've wandered all those 40 years. He sends them, so go and tell us what you see. And 10 come back, and what do they say? There's giants in the land. There's some big guys. I don't think we should go. That was their report. Joshua and Caleb say, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And there's some big people too. But we know that God is bigger than that. They gave two different reports. And the report that they gave and what they saw determined their destiny. Ten of those didn't go into the promised land. Only two who were over 20 years old, Joshua and Caleb, would go into that territory. What do you see? Now, we just heard about Stephen's ministry, and I trust that the end of all of you who sign up for that won't be Stephen's end, who was martyred and stoned before the people. But when he was being stoned, and Saul of Tarsus was looking on. This is what he saw. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing 
at the right hand of God. You train yourself to see by determining what you're looking for. Uh, just as a silly example, stare at that center dot just for a few seconds, just the very center, the dark spot. And how many notice that the haze around it starts to disappear as you're staring? Yeah, about 10 of you do, so the rest of you, <laughs> you can keep working on it. This is what our minds are trained to do because so many things are out there. So we see what we're looking for. And when we sing, we will keep our eyes on you, that's not just a metaphorical piece. Like, what do I see? As I get up today, what do I see? I see God who is on the throne. I see that He's moving this whole world closer to him. I see that he's building his church. I see him exposing everything. I see him leading and being faithful as he's always been faithful. And it's a discipline. The question, what do I see? You see what you're looking for. What am I looking for? With the eyes of faith. He asked them, do you have ears but still not hear? What do I hear? Just a little bit earlier in Mark chapter 4 is this powerful verse. Consider carefully what you hear. For with the measure you use, what is he talking about? With the measure you use, with the measure you hear, it will be measured to you and even more. What is it saying? seems to say that what we listen for and ultimately hear impacts what we will receive. Hear, O Israel, the voice of God. Hear. And so what do I hear? It's a great question to begin your day. I hear a call, God, to live by faith. I hear you calling me out. I hear your voice, my beloved, whom I love, whom I'm chosen, who I've set apart. I hear... Walk by faith and not by sight. What do you hear? How critical it is to gather those voices from God. And then he says, what do you remember? Yeah, otherwise, I'll just have to close in prayer if I don't get my notes. Because <laughs> I don't remember. Thank you. I will remember your great deeds, O Lord, says the psalmist. I will recall the wonders you did in the past. Over a hundred times in Scripture we're called to remember, recall, recount what God has done. Over 50 times it says, but they forgot. You ever done that? <laughs> we remember, but we forgot. Last Saturday at the men's breakfast here. We're sort of at the culmination of a decade and a new decade coming, and we had a question around our tables. Recount, well, what has God done in the last decade? And when you just sit and recount what the Lord has done, it builds faith. At our staff meeting this week, we, we did a similar thing, and from Joshua 4, 
where it says, build an altar of remembrance to the Lord. And we took stones and we, we each counted, what did God do in this last decade that only he could have done? Usually out of the very worst of things. Because we've walked with each other long enough, we remembered those stories. And just as then we would share it and put a stone in the middle. And we, we, we all were in tears like, oh, God, you did that. That was only this decade. And then another one and another one. Because how I remember affects how I see what I'm looking for and what I hear. Do I hear the voice of God over all other voices? And he's trying to raise up this band of fishermen and you know, riffraff disciples because soon he's going to be talking about, I'm going to be departing, I'm going to be leaving, I'm going to die. And it's going to be entrusted with them. And they're going to have to see and hear and remember. And they did. I mean, that's why we're still here, and we carry it on. It says, build this altar so that your children and your children's children, they will remember and they'll know that it was God. It's a discipline. It's an act of worship. And I remember when, around 1989, maybe we, we were... Um, had started the ministry in juvenile jails and saw so many kids come to Christ and go out and get killed and come back. And, and they begin to describe what they thought they needed, which really was a home, a place to belong. You know, and, and Hannah and I were really praying through this, and, and we really got a vision that God wanted to open a home for kids. And then eventually that he wanted us to, to, to live there and to be in that. And so I was like, well, here we go. We got, we got a vision. We got a plan. And so I started to work to raise money. And, and I must tell you, it was miraculous. Nobody gave anything. <laughs> I mean, if you ask enough people, the odds, you know, are always with you. Some will give you something just to get you off their back maybe. But nothing. I mean, zero. It, it, real miraculous. And I was like, okay, God, fine. I, I'm not going to live with juvenile delinquents, okay, have it your way. And then Hannah's like, well, what do we have? Don't we have, well, we don't have a house. No, but don't we have some savings and stuff like that? Well, well, yeah, but that's from like before when I was a stockbroker and it's for retirement because we don't really have retirement. Yeah, well, how can we expect others to give, you know, if we're not really giving, you know, sort of like five fish or a couple loaves or whatever, and it's just like, well, you don't really understand, you know, she doesn't understand this stuff. It's money and things like that, you know. What do you mean give what we have? But the Holy Spirit's after it too, so when you get the Holy Spirit and your wife needling you, <laughs> you might as well just roll over. It's, and it was a hard roll for me. It's like, oh, man, are you serious? And I remember when I decided, okay, let's put what we have in. And, and it was about a week later we got a letter in the mail from a guy in California who had gotten the first appeal and was praying about it, and God told him to give his bonus, and he gave an amount of money even. And he just sat with it and prayed about it because he didn't know what his bonus would be, but it was bigger than he had imagined his bonus would probably be, and he said, and then my bonus was exactly the amount, and so it encloses a check for fifty thousand dollars. 
I mean, you're like, then we really got scared. It's like, oh boy. We are finally getting good without living with juvenile delinquents, and now it looks like we're going to be moving ahead. And, and then we went to Minnesota for Christmas, and we lined up all the financing, found the right house, and the financing fell through. And it's like, oh God, it's over. It's done. Not going to happen. Okay, whatever. The bank screwed it up for us. Forgot everything that God had already done. Met somebody there who said, hey, just want to get with you guys because I believe God wants me to give this. So the amount we were trying to get financed. Oh, God, look at it. Then we go back, try to put it all together, and the owner says, no, I don't want to sell it. Oh, here we are. It's all over again. Things like, have you ever been through that? It's like God does this, but now you're over here and you can't imagine. Now you're, now you're dead, right? You forget everything else you ever did. And then we moved into the house. We had one boy who moved in with us. And the police brought him home that night. And it was like, we sat in bed and here's what we said. Oh God, what did we get ourselves into? We made the biggest mistake. How did we ever end up here? I can't believe we did, we, we, like, we, like we did it. And the next day, we, we just were, we didn't sleep. We went for a walk, and we started to just have to recount and remember. How did we get here? Was it really us? Remember so that you can see and so you can hear with the eyes of faith, the ears of faith. There was no shortage of miracles up till Mark chapter 8, but there seemed to be no connection from that to the next thing. And Jesus explains it somewhat here. He says, well, be careful about the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. What is it? Chapter 7 talks a lot about it, but part of the yeast of the Pharisees is this us and them mentality that because I'm blessed and I'm here and I'm this, uh, I'm all set. And others on the outside, I don't have a lot of, you know, I've made up all my stories about them. That was part of the yeast of the Pharisees, and it has made its way to us as well. And it was a hardness of heart that was it. You Worship me with your lips, Jesus said, but your hearts are far from me. You're hypocrites. Whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones and of the dead and everything unclean. The use of the Pharisees involves hypocrisy. Holding others to standards that I can't keep myself. Woe to you, teachers of the law, and you Pharisees, you're hypocrites, Jesus said. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have him, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Ouch. Ultimately, it's a leaven, a yeast of unbelief. When Jesus was asked in John chapter 6, what, what is it? mean to do the will of God. What's required? He said this, to believe in the one he sent. That's it. Unbelief. And then he said, 
beware of the yeast of, the, of Herod. And there were several Herods, but the one who was there when Jesus was born, Herod the Great, he was concerned about his position. When the words had come about that Jesus is born a baby who's going to be a king, he was worried about losing his power. So he has every child, two years old and younger, male, killed. It's scary when you see the yeast of Herod because people in power do awful things. It's also divided loyalties. Herod Antipas, who in Mark chapter 6 we hear about, who had John the Baptist's head taken off. Because, yeah, he, he liked John the Baptist, liked what he said, but when push came to shove, and now he's going to look foolish in front of his friends, he goes with self-preservation. And he has John the Baptist's head taken off. Beware. This is what snuffs out faith. And we know Hebrews 11 says, without faith it's impossible to please God. And it didn't originate with Herod, and it didn't originate with the Pharisees either, did it? It was back in the Garden of Eden, and it continues in us. And, he, and, and God says, this is the one thing required. And sometimes it just begins with, remember, what do I see? What do I hear? What are the, what's the, the voice that I'm listening to? And I don't know about you, but when I get caught up in a, a, a vicious pattern, sometimes it's like playing the victim and, oh, poor me, or uh, sabotaging when things start to go well, or, you know, we have these different things that we do over and over and over again. And I have to wonder, you know, what is it that keeps driving the disciples and driving me that keeps me living faithless when that's all I'm really called to do is walk in faith? And I have to assume that I'm getting something out of it. There's some payoff that I get by not walking in faith. Would you agree? Like, otherwise, I would just do it. Think about it. What, what do you get out of not Walking in faith, about being faithless. What are some of the payoffs? I'll, I'll give you some ideas. I get to maintain control. Do you like control? Trusting somebody else is like giving up control. I, how many like to do that as a regular practice? You've worked a long time to get where you are so you have more control than you used to. And here's this God saying, Trust me. Uh, what about, I don't want to look foolish or naive. Childlike faith sometimes can appear childish. And I don't like to look foolish. And so, when you begin to talk to people, I think God's calling me, really? I don't think you should go there. That doesn't sound good. He wants, what? what? You sure he said that? What if it doesn't work out that way? I don't want to be disappointed. We live with this fear that if we give something of ourselves, we'll be left with less, and if we give all of it, we'll be left with nothing. And there's a lot of reasons to say no thank you to faith. You could probably think of others. I don't have to be dependent. 
You don't have to risk potential loss. There's a lot of reasons, except now there's some prices we pay too because God says without faith it's impossible to please me. And not only that, what do I miss? God's power, seeing 20,000 people fed. And if you look back at the last decade of your life and you've seen God move and do things that could only be done by Him, do you want to miss that in the next decade? Well, I miss His provision. He shows up when I bring. How many, what do you have to bring, to give? I miss His presence, too. It's nothing like walking, being with Jesus in the boat. Maybe the biggest, I get passed over by God. I, he's always looking to and fro, it says in Deuteronomy, for someone whose heart is fully devoted to Him. And I'm created to be one of those someones, but I can snuff it. It's easy to have faith looking backward, isn't it? But you're in the middle of something right now. I'm sure of it, as am I. And I have to determine, what do I see in this? So we're, uh, I believe, tasked with this vision of seeing every juvenile jail in the country open to ministry. The the obstacles are just too much. It's not moving. But God, what do I see? And what do I hear? What have you said? And what do I remember? I remember how you've opened doors and taken out people that were such an obstacle. And that's what it is to walk by faith. And I'd encourage you around those three questions that Jesus put to these back then in that boat is to ask each day this week, what do I see? What do I hear and what do I remember? Let's pray. God, we see you high and lifted up. We see you building your church. We see you putting all things in order. We see you at the head. We see you faithful. And we hear your call to live by faith, to trust you, to surrender our lives to you. We hear you saying, come unto me. We hear you inviting us. And we remember. We remember how you've intervened in situations where we were pretty sure it was now over. Many times over. And how you turned things that we thought it had to go this way and you did something else and it was much better. And we we remember And 
We know you're not a genie who just does what we want, but even as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, looking at being thrown into a furnace, said, we know God can save us from that, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to abandon who he is. We will not bow. And so increase our faith, even as we extend it to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.